Hello and welcome to another episode of the Menswear Style Podcast with me, your host, Pete Brooker. And on this week's episode, we're going to focus on the winning mentality, what it takes to be a champion. We're going to be talking to ex-heavyweight champion of the world, George Foreman. Then after about 25 boxing matches, you real start thinking, man, nobody can even beat me. 37 boxing matches is impossible. Nobody can stand up to me. That's what you have because you don't even know the feeling of defeat anymore. It doesn't even exist. It doesn't doesn't even exist in your repertoire. Excellent stuff. Can't wait to get into that one. What do you think about that, Charlie? It's a good start. Yeah, we're off to a flyer. It's the first win. You're damn right. We're also going to be talking to seven times world snooker champion Stephen Hendry. In terms of like attacking and, and, and quick snooker, we're pretty similar. Mm. Um, but I just think I had I had um, I had the, the, the better, you know, the, the stronger mentality. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, Jim, Jimmy's been in six world finals and, and failed to win any of them. So that shows you there's something missing there. Stand by for that banger of an interview. I'm sorry, winning. You starting to get the concept now? Yes, indeedy. And we're also going to finish off with a chat to high-end London life coach, speaker and author, Michael Serwer. I often say to people, to my clients, hey, listen, the fact that you're good at something, the fact that you're doing a good job in the bank you work in, it doesn't fucking mean that you're supposed to spend the rest of the life there. Mm-hmm. Because if you are smart, and I would imagine every, everyone listening to this podcast, uh, it, it's intelligent. If you are intelligent, you'll be good at more than one thing. Stand by for some pearls of wisdom from Michael there and from Stephen Hendry. But first, we're going to talk to ex heavyweight champion of the world, George Foreman. The George Foreman. Are you ready for this one, Charlie? Let's just do it. Let's meet this thing head on. And you were you were in it to win it. Couldn't agree more. Just a little bit of housekeeping though. Log on to the website www.menswearstyle.co.uk. Subscribe to us in iTunes. Look for us on the social at Menswear Style, and there you'll find all the blogs, the competitions, and the interviews. Speaking of which, here is the interview with George Foreman. Welcome to the podcast, George Foreman, the one and only George Foreman. How are you doing, George? I'm great. Thank goodness. All is well for me. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Okay, George, um, maybe, well, let's just start from the beginning. In 1968, you were crowned the gold medal Olympic champion, winning that fight in Mexico. Could you just tell us a little bit about the lead-up and what your memories are of, of that tournament? Uh, my first time of actually experiencing what it is to be a celebrity because every day uh, from Mexico City, we'd go out, if we decided to go near the gate to enter uh, or come in or go out of the Olympic Village, people wanted your autograph, and I thought, wow, this is great. And I never did get over that part. I think at the ending, uh, just at the as the ending, and I was getting ready to fight in the finals, there was this big controversy in the Olympics that changed everything, at least the atmosphere. John Carlos and Tommy Smith demonstrated with the uh, with the shoes in their hands and the, and the black gloves on, and but uh, that's what I have the memory of. But nothing topped the joy I experienced once I won that gold medal. Amazing. And can you remember anything about the fight at all? Uh, looking back at the fight, uh, I had uh, my opponent would be from Russia, representing Russia, and I from the United States, and they talked then of the superpowers. So I was nervous because of the atmosphere outside of the ring and the talk in the media about how good he could be and how probably how good I could be. 
But other than that, it was just common boxing match where you get your butterflies in the dressing room and you try to shake them off before you get into the ring. That's why you jump up and down and bounce. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And this might sound like a bit of a broad question, but what do you really put it down to when you go out there and you win a match like that? I mean, obviously it's training, but you've got to get yourself into a mindset where you know you're going to go out there and you have the confidence in your own ability. Yeah, those few minutes, actually a day leading up to the boxing match and a few minutes that you walk into that ring, that walk is probably, if you want to talk about a horror movie, walking from the dress room into that ring, mm. then it's not about the fella, it's about what comes along with boxing, all of the butterflies and fears. And uh, if you can overcome that once the bell ring, it, it's an exciting event, but you're no longer nervous. It's just you, the crowd, and your opponent. Awesome. Uh, so uh, moving on after that, you then turned professional, of course, and you went on a winning streak. Uh, I think was it 37 and 0, uh, 35 knockouts. So out of all those, did you at that point... Was there some kind of aura of invincibility you felt and perhaps your opponents felt about you? Yeah, after about 15 boxing matches, you realize then that, hey, it's no fluke. I can punch, and it's hard for anyone to stand under my power. Uh, then after about 25 boxing matches, you really start thinking, man, nobody can even beat me. 37 boxing matches is impossible. Nobody can stand up to me. That's what you have because you don't even know the feeling of defeat anymore. It doesn't even exist. Doesn't it doesn't doesn't even exist in your repertoire. And how do you carry that with you? So each time you go into a fight within that streak, you must be thinking, well, it's got to end sometime, or do you just don't think it's going to end? You're that confident? Oh no, it's something that is given to you. This 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 feeling that comes up on you, and it's like I can do anything if I miss a hundred shots. The 101 shot is going to be the one that knocked the guy out. And you start thinking, you know, sooner or later, even if I'm not the better, I've got some magical power in my fist that I'm going to get him sooner or later. That's what you think. You don't think about losing because that's not what you do. And, and during that time, can you remember any of the opponents? I mean, before you met Joe Frazier, anyone that you thought, this guy could have my number or this guy's going to be a real threat? I never did think that uh, coming up, you know, I had one fight after another. Then I'd get into a couple of fights, and uh, some guy would take every shot I had, and I thought, uh, man, this is going to James J. Woody, an opponent in New York City. He had been the New York State uh, heavyweight champion of the state. And I'd hit him and everything, and I got it all done, and I looked up, and he was still coming after me, and I thought, Mm, is this the end of the magic? <laughs> but then I start pounding, pounding, pounding. He still kept coming. And finally, the referee stopped the boxing match. Yeah. It, that was the only time I felt like this could be the end. It could have been my less than 10 fights. Yeah. He just took it all and he kept coming. So, George, when you first came on the scene, you had a very destructive style, often knocking out your opponents within the first couple of rounds. Did you have a favorite punch, an uppercut or a right hook, something that you'd be looking to deliver? I threw so many punches, and every now and then I'd see someone fall by way of one or the other. So it was not a preferred punch I had. Every punch I threw, if I kept throwing them over and over, one would get you. And I'd look up, and I'd always say, I didn't know I could knock you out with that one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
Well, you must you must have been pleasantly surprising yourself constantly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was something that was just happening to me, and if I tell you I knew this, knew what was going to happen, I'd be lying. Yeah, interesting. So, George, you've knocked out Frazier, you've destroyed Norton. It's time to fight Muhammad Ali in Zaire. It's the Rumble of the Jungle documentary that I want to talk to you about. How do you think that documentary portrayed you? Oh, you know, you look back and I'd get a knockout here and there. Sometimes I don't know where the punch had come from. I'd knock a guy out, it'd be a wild shot. Then I'd read in the paper the next day, George Foreman with this powerful punch and he worked on this big hook and uh, he perfected it and knocked the guy out and that that hadn't been really true but it sounded good to me so I, I started saying yeah that's right that's right mm. so when you lose and you're portrayed and things are said and they're not accurate there's no need in saying hey say this better because <laughs> <laughs> I applauded when they said great things whether they were true or not then I had I was betrayed in that uh, rumble in the jungle and all of that as one guy and the other. Why should I complain then? Yeah. You take the good, then you should be able to stomach the bad. Uh, I mean, I guess my first memory of you was when I woke up and found that you beat Michael Moore in 94. And you were crowned heavyweight champion once again. Did you find it easier coming back as an underdog like you did when you were with Joe Frazier and Kendall? And you were underdogs going into a fight. Do you perform better when you have something to prove? No, I just didn't. I had this punch, and I still, I had come back into boxing, made a comeback, and I found I still had that punch again. I didn't get overconfident like I had done with the Muhammad Ali fight. Uh, I had fear when I fought Muhammad Ali. I didn't have any fear. I went in the dressing room, didn't have any fear. I thought, this is the way you want to be. The first time I'd gotten into the ring without fear, and I lost with to the to Muhammad Ali. This time I'd come back and I'd manufactured and regained my fear. And I had many knockouts. So getting ready to fight for that Michael Moore fight, the odds didn't mean anything to me. That didn't mean anything at all because I had this fear, and with this fear, I had this punch again. Wow, so you kind of channel that fear. Um, how, how do you do that, or how can you utilize that fear? Well, I knew that I had lost the championship of the world back in the day because I didn't have any fear. And I, before, when I got in the ring with Joe Frazier, I couldn't control my knees shaking, and I was so afraid of Joe Frazier. And, of course, I got a knockout. Mm. Then I, one after another, got in the ring with Muhammad Ali. I said, no fear. So the second time around, I decided what was greater than my punch was my fear of getting beat. So every time I'd gotten into the ring that second time around, I had this fear of getting beat again. And with Michael Moore, it had peaked so much fear. (laughs) My God, so even after all them fights and all that experience, uh, you were... Let's just say that um, maybe is it complacency then when you don't get the fear that you're just too overconfident? I think that's that's a good word because more you do a thousand push-ups, a thousand sit-ups, hit the bag for I don't know how many rounds, you spar for so many rounds, but without that fear ingredients, you are not in shape at all. I had gotten my fear back. (laughs) That's awesome. That's almost like the next name for your book, George. Um, could you tell us what a day in the life is like now for you? 
Well, I live a good life now. I'm a by profession. I'm a evangelist at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Houston. Mm-hmm. Three days a week, when I'm in town, I have services. I conduct the service. I'm the chief speaker around there, and uh, so I try to get that ready. And I even pay attention to what's on the floor. Has the floor been swept? We also have a George Foreman Youth and Community Center where the kids come in to practice boxing and working out and all of that. I support it, and I travel all over the country speaking to uh, generate funds for that charity. And I speak. That's what I travel full-time, speaking, 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 and telling the George Foreman story. Hopefully it will still inspire people because I had gone into the Hall of Fame it's a story that everyone should be uh, uh, should be aware of it, hmm. and especially young people. They should hear that story that that's their present state. It doesn't matter how depressing it is, they can overcome. It, just a little bit about the um, the start of that then for you. So uh, you said you had like this religious experience after you lost a fight to Jimmy Young, and it was that moment that was the tipping point. Well, you gave up boxing and became a born-again Christian. What was that experience like, and what was it exactly, if you can put it into words? Well, I went back into the dressing room cooling off. I was real hot. The air conditioning had gone out in Puerto Rico that night, and as I walked back and forward like I'd done before, trying to cool off, I was overcome, just overcome with heat. I don't think I could make it. Then as I was walking and and talking and moving around i started thinking like i'd normally done i said you know i'd lost the boxing match on points i said fight doesn't mean anything i'm still george foreman i've got money i just signed a contract to do movies and television i could go home now and retire and die and i never thought that before in my life i was overcome with you're gonna die and i thought i'd heard about athletes dying in the dressing room but i never thought it could happen to me but i fought 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 I heard a voice within me say, uh, you believe in God, why are you scared to die? And I was afraid. I didn't want to die. I had everything to live for, and I didn't want people to think I was dying because of a boxing match. Mm. But anyway, I tried to make a deal. After a while, I knew that voice was God. I said, I, I, I got, I'm still George Foreman. I can give money to charity and for cancer. And a voice answered me back within and said, I don't want your money. I want you. Boy, I started crying. My legs gave out on me, and I looked around the room and everybody. I said, I'm fixing to, before I could say another word, I was dead out of this life, over my head, under my feet, nothing. If you explain what death is, death is nothing. It was like a dump yard of every sad thought I'd ever had in my life, and there was no more me. And I looked behind me and saw my money, my real estate investment, everything just crumble like ashes, like you stick uh, fire to a piece of paper, and it just crumbled. I saw that, and I got mad because in this dump yard, there wasn't any hope for me, like someone had dropped me off in the sea. I said, I don't care if this is death. I still believe there's a God, and I just gave up. When I did, a gigantic hand reached in and pulled me out. I was alive in that dressing room again, screaming, screaming. Evidently, they picked me off the floor, and my, my doctor was standing behind me, Dr. West. I said, move your hand, Doc. He's bleeding from the, the thorns on his head are making him bleed. And I looked at my hand, I told my masseur, Mr. Fuller, Mr. Fuller, he's ble- look, move your hand, he's bleeding where they crucified him. No, the, yeah, he's bleeding, his hands are bleeding. And I started screaming, Jesus Christ is coming alive in me. And that was 1977, and I'm still telling that story. 
it shocked me because it's scared. I I try to say, you know, you got hit, George, or all kind of excuses, but the smell of death, you never lose, you never forget it. It's a horrible smell. Mm. And even as I speak with you, I can even smell it again. I've never forgotten that. For 10 years, I didn't even make a fist. I didn't go back into my gym. I stopped boxing. I became an evangelist. Yeah. People called you brother, reverend. I stopped preaching funerals. I was ordained in 79 uh, at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what I'm doing to this day. That's what happened in that dressing room. Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. When you did find boxing again and you did return to the ring, uh, trying to pair that power of Christianity with boxing, uh, was there any conflict in your mind? You know, I'd, I'd left boxing because I, I used to hit that punching bag, and it would always be Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, you named them, George uh, uh, Chavalo. I'd be hitting that bag, and that's who I'd be hitting. Mm. Then after I had this experience, the bag was a piece of le- leather, just hard leather, just a rag. And that's why I stopped. I didn't have any anyone. I, all the hate was gone. So I go down to the gym. I started the youth center in Houston because these kids were getting in trouble, and I put my money up that I'd saved uh, to retire on. And the kids would come in with chips on their shoulder. I said, no, you don't have to try to hurt anybody. You don't have to get angry. And I taught them how to box. And the point was never a punch in anger. I said, defend yourself. And I I showed them how to defend themselves. And then when kids who couldn't fight would come in the gym, I let them spar with them. And they would just make those kids just get tired. And I said, don't hurt them now. You got them tired. You don't have to hurt them. Hmm. So with that, I learned how to box. And my thing was never a punch in anger. And so I was easily able to get back into boxing. That wasn't the old George Foreman was dead. This was a profession for me. It was a way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And I never tried to hurt anyone. Boxing is the grandpa of ping pong. <laughs> and you could, if without boxing, we wouldn't have had it. Why did it? Why did the Tyson fight not happen in 91, despite both of you wanting that fight to go ahead? Yeah, the Tyson fight is a strange thing because he could really punch. What a beautiful, he had this delivery of quickness to the temple. And everybody figured, well, George, you know, you're from Joe Frazier. They compared them styles. And I think that Tyson Kemp always looked at it that he could have been maybe a pattern for another Joe Frazier matchup. Mm. And so they kind of, they were weary of a George Foreman fight. And it wasn't like I was begging to fight Mike Tyson either because what a puncher and a fearful puncher. I mean, dreaded puncher. I didn't want him either. Mm. So one was scared and the other was glad of it. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want me and I certainly didn't want to beg for him. But man, making my comeback in those times, mm. I really needed him more than he needed me. I see. And what are your relationships like now with other boxers around? I mean, of that time, I just spoke to Evander Holyfield a couple of weeks ago. You know, he actually fought you and you went the whole 12 rounds. I mean, that was incredible. So do you ever come across these guys? Do you ever speak to them? Yeah, these days when you see them, you realize what a prize they are. Evander Holyfield, and then after losing Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, you realize what a prize Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson, uh, and the likes, what they really are now. These are 
I'm so happy. I love those guys. And we get together. It's really a wonderful time because we can smile and make jokes at what we used to call threats. Mm. We enjoy one another. I love them. When I see them, there's so much to talk about. Just lastly, George, a rather tenuous question, but do you have a favorite boxing film? Uh, film? Do you mean movie? Or? Movie, yeah. Oh, yeah, there are so many good movies. My favorite is called with Humphrey Bogart, way back, an old movie in black and white. It's called The Harder They Fall. The Harder They Fall. Oh. That's a boxing That's film? It's a boxing movie. Look Starring up. Humphrey Bogart, The Harder They Fall. Oh, it's, wow. the story, it's the true story of boxing. George Foreman there. What a privilege it was to speak to George. So, Charlie, tell me a little bit about your life, your everyday. How do you spend your life winning? And what do you say to the people that try and bring you down? I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to win inside of every moment. And uh, and they can just find the most comfortable chair in their small house and uh, sit back and enjoy the show. That's good stuff, Charlie. Okay, so we're going to have a chat now with seven times world snooker champion, someone that knows a thing or two about the winning mentality, Stephen Hendry. On the podcast now, we're speaking to Stephen Hendry, seven times world snooker champion. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm very well, thanks. Excellent, great. Well, as a snooker fan, this is a huge treat. Stephen, could you just give us a little bit of a backstory of what got you into snooker and what it takes, what minerals are required to win a world championship seven times? Um, well, I mean, I first, I first got into snooker, I was given a small table, a toy table, um, which is about a quarter the size of a full-size one for my uh, Christmas, sort of two weeks before my 13th birthday. Um, I'd never played snooker before, n- n- never watched snooker. Um, so, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was a complete surprise as a present. Um, but when I, within a couple of weeks, I, I was making 50 breaks in it. Um, didn't really realise... I was that good, but obviously I, th- I just thought it was just something everyone could play. It wasn't really until I started moving, you know, go, go to the local club and playing people, playing my mates and playing my dad and my, my relatives. I thought, you know, there might be something in it. Um, so obviously, you know, answering the sort of second part of your, your question, talent, you've got to be born with a talent to play snooker. Um, you know, if you're born without the talent, you know, there's no way you're going to be become a professional and be successful. Um, but sort of allied to that is obviously a lot of hard work. Um, my manager that took me on when I was sort of 15, 16, prior to turning pro at 16, instilled in me a, 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 a tremendous work ethic, work ethic that, that made me sort of practice six, seven hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Well. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and I think in all sports you have you have to really work hard. But I think in individual sports um, it, it's even more important. Um, like golf, and you just have to because it's all about repetition um, and, and, and repeating and repeating the things over and over and over again. Um, but then when you get to obviously being successful and, and, and actually the, the, what separates people, you know, the great from the good in terms of winning, um, it's about being able to play your best best snooker in, in the sort of most pressurized situations, which is what I've, I've always been able to do. Um, and I've always been greedy for more success. You know, I, I would win a tournament on a Sunday night and be back practicing on a Monday morning and want to win the next one. So, so, so greed. Um, which comes naturally as a Scotsman probably um, is, is, is an important aspect as well. Yeah, interesting. So, Stephen, was it always your ambition to beat Davis's record, to beat Reardon's record of six world championships? Well, when I was a professional at 16, um, I was the youngest, and, and, and lots of people said um, to my father, my management, and, and even to me, that it was a big mistake. I should have stayed as an amateur for another two or three years, really sort of learned, learned the game, and, and, and said that I would be, you know, it, it, would, it would destroy me turning pro so early. But 
we, we basically took the, the, the thought that there was nothing else I could learn as an amateur. Um, I wanted to be in with the big boys in the best best conditions. You know, when when I turned pro, no one in Scotland had ever been successful in, in snooker. So so there was no history there. There was no reason to to say that I was going to be any different. Um, but I won my first major event when I was 18, uh, the Rothmans Grand Prix. I beat Steve Davis on the way, which was the first time I'd beaten him as well. And sort of from then on, I sort of thought, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I want to be the best at this. Um, I mean, I did say a quote when I turned pro at 16, I'd be world champion by the time I was 21, uh, which a lot of people thought was was mental, and 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 probably I didn't believe it in myself 100%, but I did achieve that. Um, I, you know, I was world champion at 21, um, and and as soon as I won it the first time, obviously the goal then was to win it seven. So, like when you were, won your first tournament, you beat Jimmy White 18-12, I believe. Um, were you the underdog going into that, and did you prefer to be the underdog when you were playing? I don't think I was underdog in that match because uh, having, I beat John Parrott in the semi-final to become world number one. Um, so, so probably, I, probably I was I was the favourite to win the match. Right. Um, but still, it was, it was still my first world final. Mm. So it, there was still that aspect of it. But to be honest, after after getting to world number one and, and winning, the final, I didn't I didn't see any reason, any way that I was going to lose that match. Mm. Um, I just went into the final so confident, so. You know, I, I just, I just didn't even entertain the, the the slightest possibility of losing. But that's all at the age of twenty-one. So, where do you think the confidence came from? Was it beating Davis? Obviously, Davis had this. Perhaps he's coming to an end of an era himself, but he had this aura, as uh, Barry Hearn would say. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's 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 strange that I had this sort of winning mentality because I haven't had it in any of anything else I've ever done in my life. You know, <laughs> I, I played sport at school, but 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 to, to no no great level. Um, I wasn't very, you know, I wasn't a scholar. I wasn't very academic. So there's nothing that this really, this this sort of killer instinct, this this will to win, that, you know, manifested itself until I played snooker. Um, so yeah, I mean, as, as I said before, when I, I played Steve Davis maybe 15, 16 times and lost every time. So when I was 18 and beat him on the way to that first major, that that was a big stepping stone for me because he was, although Jimmy White was sort of, when I first sort of started playing snooker at 13, 14, I loved watching Jimmy. But when I turned pro and wanted to be serious, there was only one man to sort of model yourself on and 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 get close to, and that was Steve Davis because he was the only one that was winning, winning everything. Yeah. So, so how much also? I mean, it, it's kind of interesting you say that you liked watching Jimmy because his style was perhaps the polar opposite of yours. I mean, he you had a very solid game, um, a very cutthroat, ruthless game, and and Jimmy was quite mm. flamboyant. Maybe played to the galleries a few too many times. Also, mm. I guess his lifestyle was some way interfering with his game because it was very erratic off the table. Um I think I think my, our our games are pretty similar. Um you know I mean obviously Jimmy would not would play the sort of sort of big the big screw shots at the end if he'd, if he'd already won the frame but in terms of like attacking and, and, and quick snooker we were pretty similar. Mm. Um but I just think I had I had um I had the the, the, the better you know the, the stronger mentality. I mean it's as simple as that. I mean you know Jim, Jimmy's been in six world finals and, and failed to win any of them. So that shows you there's something missing there, um, and obviously you, you mentioned about his lifestyle, and Jimmy's been very open about the fact that he, he, he was, you know, he, he liked to party, to gamble, and everything that went with it. But I, I tend to think that if Jimmy didn't do those things, then, then he wouldn't maybe be even as successful as he was, because if you took that away from Jimmy, it wouldn't be him. Mm. You know, I think if you put him in a club six hours a day, seven days a week, I think he would, it would, it would kill his enthusiasm for the game um, at that time. Um, so perhaps he wouldn't have even done as well as he as he did. But um, but yeah, so it's a, it was it was a similar sort of game that we we played. But obviously, 
I think I, I was a lot stronger and able to play better on, on the bigger occasions. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, how many times did you play him in the final? I think it was five times. But I mean, he wasn't really your nemesis, I guess, because you had the rub on him in the World Championships, even though he mm. uh, beat you in other events as well. You know, it wasn't just a completely mm. one-sided yeah, affair. Yeah. Um, but at the time, did you really have someone that you hated playing or someone that you loved playing? Um, not, not really, not really. I mean, I, I, I there's a sort of later on, um, you know, there, there was, I mean, one of the matches that still, still, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I shiver I was losing to Peter Ebden in the final once. Um, basically, cause we, we, the, the type of game he played, um, you know, he, he was a quite slow, he was quite a slow, de- deliberate player, and, and he would mm. play shots that you didn't expect uh, to see played by, by by a professional. To be to be frank, he played a completely different game, which obviously you know got him to be world champion. Which which no one no one can take anything away from that. But I played him in the final and 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 really didn't expect him to beat me over over four sessions. But uh, and due to my sort of bad attitude in that match, you know, expecting to win rather than going out and and, and being ruthless, um, it, it cost me that world title. Right. I mean, I kind of miss the old Peter Ebden, the one that would shout and throw his fists around the table after winning a game. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to bring up was something similar that I spoke to with George Foreman. And when he got beat by Ali, he he got beat heavily and then came back in in a sense and you know had numerous comebacks. But his life was pretty much that was the crossroads in his life. And mm-hmm. I remember hearing in an interview with you ages ago about how you won that title and you said it was all down to Marcus Campbell beating you nine nil in a UK championship. You said you yeah, owed it everything yeah. to him. I think I think that was um, that was a massive. I mean, that was a, up up to winning my seven world title. It was a massively poor season I was having. Um, I mean, not only did I lose nine nil to Marcus Campbell, um, which was which was bad enough. Um, I lost twice to Tony Drago, a player who I'd never lost in my whole career. Um, so so yeah, it was a it was a poor season. Um, I, I, I sort of I went back to um, I had a, I had an old coach called Frank Callan who's sadly departed us now, but um, he, he was he was involved in me for a long time in my career, but I'd, I'd sort of stopped stopped being with Frank, um, and he decided to come back on board, and and he didn't really do anything massively, but I think, just think the fact I needed someone there to sort of sort of reassure you and say, look, this is, you know there is nothing wrong with your game, we just you know a couple of tweaks and this this has worked really hard and mm-hmm. and I did I mean I just you know what you know what my bollocks off excuse the French before that before that world championship and 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 managed to get my game into um, a, a decent shape um, and you know it was it was a it was a it was a tough draw I had I played the, the sort of I played the, the the late Paul Hunter in the first round which was a really tough draw to get. Mm-hmm. Um, Went and got, got through that, and, and, and as I say, we ended up beating Mark Williams um, in, in the final. Yeah, and uh, I guess was that some kind of vengeance for the Masters title, the uh, the, the very famous ten nine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was. It, it was. It was. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I wasn't really thinking about that, but um, again, yeah, I mean, I mean, usually when I got to the finals of the World Championship, I didn't, I didn't really think I was going to lose. It was, I was just so comfortable in that one table situation. Um, at the Crucible, it's my favourite place to play. Um, so yeah, even though it was Mark, um, I was I was very confident of, of winning that match. Uh, within the system, I know Barry Hearn has set up this uh, kind of uh, ranking system there that you can have like the the older dudes come back uh, for some mm. exclusive pass. I think uh, Steve Davis mm. exercised it, and it will be open to a few other legends of the tour. Is there any chance that you'll be coming back and using that license? 
Um, well, I mean, I mean it's a, the, the, we, we, we were given Steve Davis, me, and I think James Watana, who was a, a famous player from Thailand mm-hmm. around about the 90s, were given these wild cards. Uh, and, and as long as there was space in each tournament, if the, in, the full quota of entries wasn't taken up, we'd be offered a place. Mm. Um, unfortunately, for this, this the end of last season, he took that off us. Ah. So, so we're 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 no longer um, able to play in all the tournaments. We 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 can play in the World Championship, um, but that's it. So right. it's, um, it's it's so yeah. I mean, I I do miss it. I mean, I would like to play in the odd event, but as I say, that's been taken off off us, and I'm certainly not going to go to Q school and, and try and qualify to be to be a pro again. Um, <laughs> but um, so so it's uh, yeah, it's it's, un, it's unfortunate. Oh, um, you're kidding? Because uh... because when 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 I did have the World Cup last couple of years for. For various reasons, you know, personal and and on on the table, it was you know it was really in a good frame of mind to play. So it's unfortunate now that I quite fancy playing the other event. I'm not allowed to. Yeah. So how are you spending most of your time now? Uh, well, I go to China quite a lot. I do still do quite a lot of work over there. Um, I'm an ambassador for uh, a type of Chinese eight ball pool. Um, one of the main manufacturers of the tables out there. Um, so I go around China basically as ambassador for that. And, you know, I've been around about 50, 60 cities in the last four years for them. Awesome. Um, just just traveling around. But, I mean, basically, I'm just eating, drink, eating, drinking my way around China. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing anything competitive. Um, I still do obviously my work on the BBC um, as, as as a pundit and a commentator, and I'm, I'm doing I'm doing the, the the ITV tournaments this year as well. So Excellent. so yeah, I'm, I'm still involved in the game. Um, as I say, I do miss it, especially Sunday nights. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, apart from that, just I do the odd exhibition. Still, still get my cue. Maybe have a game for a couple of hours if, if I'm bored. But um, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep pretty, keep pretty busy. Well, Stephen, I could probably have you on the phone for a good couple of hours, but I know you've you've got more important stuff to do. <laughs> but um, listen, thanks for taking the time out. I, it does sound like you've you've almost been put out to stud, as it were. But I'd, I'd much like to see you <laughs> back on the TV. And if you've got that license to turn up at the World Championship, that that'd be great to see you on that again. I know where uh, Davis did that. This year, I think it was for the last time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the only problem is you've got to go to a bloody leisure centre and, and play three qualifying matches, which doesn't really mm. inspire me too much. Um, if the qualifying was at the Crucible, um, it would definitely be a serious consideration. But um, no, I, when you played at the Crucible and you played at uh, you know the, the Wembley, Old Wembley Conference Centre in front of 3,000 people, playing in a leisure centre where people are walking past with their rubber rings to go swimming, it doesn't really inspire Stephen Hendry talking to me earlier. Okay, so now, a quick word from our sponsor. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. Some meaty words from Sylvester there. Okay, so we're going to finish off with an interview with Michael Sower, the London life coach, high-end London life coach, speaker and author, a man with a black belt in winning mentality. This is Michael Sower. Enjoy this one. On the podcast now, we have Michael Sower, the high-end London life coach, speaker and author. How are you doing, Michael? 
I'm excellent. How are you, Pete? I'm fantastic. Thanks for taking the time out to speak to me today. Um, Pleasure. What, my... what, a, what a way to start the day for me. Yeah, excellent. I say start a day because, uh, you know, I don't belong to any of this 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. club when people wake up in the middle of the night to do some sh- crazy shit like yoga. Uh, <laughs> I wake up at 10 and I don't apologize for it. So it's a very, very, very much start of the day for me at 5 past 11. Well, that's, that's fascinating because I hear many different approaches from entrepreneurs to start the day right with getting up at the crack of six and doing half hour on the treadmill then taking a cold shower so it's quite refreshing to know that you can get up at 10 i'm, I'm going to embrace oh, that <laughs> yeah I, I you know as far as i'm concerned i start the day well as well i wake up at 10 i always say to people don't ask me any questions don't ask me for any favors before 11 a.m because the automatic answer is no because uh-huh. i'm not a morning person so i need one hour to pick myself up you know sure so i can be just like answering emails or like looking at the Facebook and etc. But like I, I don't try, I try to avoid any conversations with human beings before 11 because I need an hour to, to get ready. And then I always say there's no, there is no one way of becoming successful. This whole fucking like, I got to wake up early and this and that, like, you know, you, yes, you're going to wake up at five, but if you wake up at five, what time are you going to go to sleep? So why are you going to be going to sleep? Are we still working to two, till 2 a.m.? So yeah. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter when you work as long as you work and you work enough right yeah so that's how i look at it so but yeah it, obviously the, the the general trend is to wake up very early and you know getting shit done before everybody else wakes up but like I, i'm i'm just not i didn't sign up for this plan and I have no intention of so <laughs> whatever well i'm glad i've caught you just after 11 so i feel like i've got yeah that's perfect, perfect. No, there, was, there was no coincidence Pete, that we didn't schedule that for 10 for half past 10 yeah it, <laughs> there's no coincidence Uh, well now that you've climatized to the day um if you could just let us know a little bit about yourself please michael Uh, brag a little bit if you will um they say it's not bragging if you can back it up um (laughs) so i'm a i'm a i'm an immigrant from from poland i came here 11 years ago at the age of 22 on the bus uh, because i couldn't afford the plane ticket it took me 27 hours to get here I don't recommend it. Uh, I spent uh, the first two weeks on the squat in southeast London, in a shithole of southeast London. Uh, I know there are good areas in southeast London, but the one I was in wasn't one of them uh, because I literally had no money. The only reason I could come here in the first place with my girlfriend at the time is because I had a couple of friends really living here and they were kind enough to lend us some money to begin with. So I came here broke, but also came here with a massive attitude of uh, absolute and uh, total domination that will take place um, as long as I, uh, so as soon as I discover the vehicle I would like to use to express myself. Yeah, I, I see coaching or any other form of um, ex- expression, any any other form of any other form of work as a as a form of expression, which is like a form of art. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't discover coaching for the first four years after coming here. Sorry, four years, five years after coming here. I, I spent the first five years in fashion retail. I had a very successful career there, but it was an example of of winning in a wrong game. Mm-hmm. I often say to people, to my clients, hey, listen, the fact that you're good at something, the fact that you're doing a good job in the bank you work in, it doesn't fucking mean that you're supposed to spend the rest of the life there. Mm-hmm. Because if you are smart, and I would imagine every, everyone listening to this podcast, uh, it, it's intelligent. If you are intelligent, you'll be good at more than one thing. 
So yeah. the fact that you are good at your job and they praise you and they give you, you know, every time every time you're thinking about leaving, they give you a bit of a pay rise, they change your title so you can, you know, change things on your business card. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to be doing it, you know. So yes, I was good in fashion retail, just like I could be good at at few other things, I'm sure. But it wasn't it. My heart wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered coaching at 27, I was like, fuck, this is it. Like in every cell of my body, I felt that this is the right thing for me to do. Right. And that's the vehicle I was, I had in mind coming here, like my whole life, like my whole adult life, I had a, I had this very strong knowing that I'm destined for greatness. I just need to find a vehicle to express myself, the vehicle that's going to take me to that greatness, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at 27, I found out that this vehicle is coaching and it's been, what, six years since that discovery. And, that knowing hasn't left me for for a single day, for a minute, right? And I started with nothing. I, I was actually five thousand pounds in debt on credit cards when I started my coaching business. Right. And when I first started, I was charging twenty pounds per session. Um, that's as much I had. That's 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 as much as I could charge, having the level of confidence and experience, lack of it mm-hmm. rather, that I had at the time. And I really paced myself as my confidence was growing as a coach. I was putting my fees up, so to 50 pounds per session and 75 pounds per session, 100 pounds per session. Then I started to charge upfront for programs. And and now, uh, five years after launching my website, uh, I'm one of the highest paid life coaches, not only in the UK, but also on the planet, uh, easily top 1% with, uh, you know, with my quarter of a million turnover, which is, you know, Anyone listening to that, if you are like in a, in, if you're in a business or if you're any other kind of normal, so to speak, industry, quarter of a million turnover might not sound like a lot, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, in life coaching, it's it's unheard of. It's yeah. it's it's extremely extremely high. You know, bear in mind, I don't have any costs. I have very little costs. I don't have an office. I don't have any staff. I have you know part-time assistant, virtual assistant, and that's that's about it. So it's a it's a tremendous amount of money for doing something I absolutely fucking love with the people I absolutely fucking love. You know, sometimes I'm like, somebody pinch me because I get to spend time with amazing, amazing people, high achievers, winners, uh, people with great attitude. I get to spend time with them because that's what coaching is, and having conversations with them because that's what coaching is. And I get paid for it, not just paid for it, but I get paid for it uh, enough to 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 be able to afford the, having the kind of lifestyle that I have, which is which is a, which is a very nice, comfortable lifestyle. Not just for me, but for my girlfriend as well, who I'm supporting, and for my parents back in Poland, who I'm supporting. And and life is good, you know. And it's all through the they say, you know, what, what they say is the labor of love. You know, I, will be, I maybe wouldn't go as far as like you know, I'm doing it because it's a labor of love because I actually. You know, I, I find it quite selfish because I actually enjoy helping people. Like I get something out of it, you know. So mm. I feel like, yes, my job is to help people, but like I, I feel like I'm doing it for myself first of all, because it just that that's the buzz that I get from it. So I'm actually very fucking selfish. You know? <laughs> well, greed is good, according to Gordon Gecko. That's um, one of the things I took from Wall Street. Um, Michael, just quick, in regards to like having, say, a, a winning mentality, and if you're looking to make people more of a success, uh, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I guess it might be your job when people come to you for you to dismantle them and then put them back together again without the glitches and insecurities. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes. So I, I work with people today. Like when I first started, I would work with any fucker, you know, willing to spend 20 quid. Uh, but today I work with people who already have a winning attitude 
or at the very least they have some foundation of this winning attitude already because you know i i i i believe that you can't turn a loser into a winner if you if you are a loser if you're the if you are the victim the blamer the oh the immigrants are coming stealing our jobs you know like i don't want to work with you like you are hopeless so like you need to sort your shit out before you come in to me because i don't have patience for this like if you come to me and you blame other people or other things for the fact that you are whatever whatever you are and you're not happy with it then i'm not interested in working with you i'm a performance coach i work with winners i work with people who have a winning attitude and of course there are different levels of that winning attitude so the winning attitude i had coming here at 22 is different to the winning to the level of uh, this 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 mindset that i have today because i've been working on it for the last 10 years for personal development like for myself mm-hmm. so there are different layers but definitely uh, you know, if if uh, you know if, if someone has a loser mentality, if someone spent their whole life feeling sorry for themselves, that that's the biggest limitation that they have right. in terms of uh, succeeding in life. So on the other side, oh, sorry, yeah. no, no, sorry, carry on, please. On the other side, if you have this winning attitude already, whether with the help of coaching, which is basically, you know, which is basically accelerating this process of growth, or by yourself. There's not, absolutely nothing you cannot do. That's that's my personal belief because, you know, I don't need to look far for example of that because you know I look at myself, came with nothing, uh, very basic English, no support of the family, not mental support, but not financial, no no support of any kind from anyone other than mental, and you know if I could achieve what I achieved in my professional life, if I could achieve what I achieved in my personal life, which is a separate story maybe for a different interview. You know, I believe that I genuinely believe that everybody can if you have the right attitude. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the winning attitude you're talking about. You the winning mindset. Like you have to have that. You have to have a belief. You have to have a desire. You know, you 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 have to have a desire to have something before you can even think about having it. And what is it that most? I mean, obviously each of your clients would be different. Uh, but what is perhaps your overriding arc that they come to you with? Is it a lack of work ethic? Is it being dispassionate about their job or not? having their calling is is it all of that yeah all all of the above plus like 20 other things this is the question i get asked a lot like michael what what you know you are a life coach you help people with all sorts of things but what's the one thing that people come to you with the most Mm. and the answer is the honest answer is i I don't know because it's really it's it's really just one thing it is sometimes like career change or you know, I want to meet someone or I want to date more, you know, more often than not, it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. And w- when I meet someone for the first time and I have this free initial consultation with people interested in, in, in coaching, we go through the simple exercise with that 22 different areas. And I go one by one and ask people to score themselves on each of them on a scale from zero to 10. Zero being I'm extremely dissatisfied in this area. Uh, 10 being I'm extremely satisfied. So among these 22 areas, we have anything from love life, career, finances, confidence, self-love, motivation level, work-life balance, fitness, health, you name it, spirituality, anything you can think of, stress level, anything you can think of will fall into one of these 22 categories. And you see, the, 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 the last one, the 22nd one, is general happiness. Mm-hmm. And what happens almost every single time, and I do this exercise around 200 times a year, the general happiness score at the bottom is the exact average of all the other scores. So I believe that ultimately people come to me because they want to be more happy. 
But it doesn't mean that they necessarily say that when they come to see me or when they send me an email. Yeah. yeah, especially if you are a successful CEO, age 50, you're not going to send me an email and say, hi, Michael, I hope you can help me. I want to be more happy. No, yeah. he's going to say, I feel stuck. He's going to use different language. He's going to say, my relationship with my wife is not great because I've been working for the last 30 years. And But at the end of the day, it's about the happiness. So, you know, I don't call myself happiness coach because that sounds fucking cheesy. <laughs> but I am. But ultimately, what I'm helping people sounds with like a, is, sounds is, like a horrible Samuel L. Jackson film. That the, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it, ultimately, it's it's about helping people become feel, feeling happier, more fulfilled, more content with their lives. And the way we do it, we identify the areas with low scores, right? And then we create throughout the coaching process. It's very simple. We create action plans around those areas. We ask ourselves, okay, what can we do with the four out of ten on a love life? Okay, let's talk about what can we do with three out of ten on a work life balance. Let's talk about it. And then throughout the coaching process, um, the inevitably these scores go up because we're working on it. And when they go up, they form a new higher average. And right. that's it. That's the whole. You know, it's coaching is life coaching is simple. Um, you know, especially if you do it with someone like me, who's just like, I, I, I'm a very black and white person. I'm very like, what you see is what you get. And, and I like clarity and I like clear structures. I'm a little bit, I have a little bit of German blood in me. Maybe that's why I, I'm a very structured person. Uh, and you know, I, I, it, it's efficient and it's simple. It's a very simple process. You know, there's nothing airy fairy about it unless you get a coach who, We'll try to, you know, ask you to close your eyes because, you know, there's different, different kinds of coaching. Mm. But in a nutshell, me, what me and my associates and all, most of the coaches that I know, what we do is very simple. is having these conversations around the areas that people need to improve or want to improve. And those conversations and the action plans created at the end of those conversations that people work on between sessions lead to increasing general happiness or general satisfaction in life. That's it. Michael, I'm just curious, you're looking after all these people and these clients are coming to you and you're kind of fixing their problems and, and guiding them. Who's looking after you? Oh, you mean apart from my girlfriend? <laughs> yeah, just like <laughs> just your mental direction. How do you see yourself improving, you know, evolving, etc.? Yeah. No, it's a very good question, Pete. I, I, uh, I, I believe in a product that I sell. The product I sell, it's called coaching. And I wouldn't even think to go through life without having a coach. So mm -hmm. I had I had many coaches, I mean not many, don't exaggerate. I had I had one coach, life coach for two years. Now I've had the business coach that I have, uh, Daniel Priestley, who's a very successful entrepreneur and the author of three best selling books. Little plug in here. Sure. Uh, for since the summer last year he's been brilliant. So very much business coaching. And occasionally I would see some other coaches for like one off sessions. And, and also bear in mind, I, you know, I'm surrounded by coaches. I have a team of associates. So sometimes if it's something, you know, minor, I would run it by my associates, basically, you know. So I'm just being, I'm just being, uh, you know, cost effective. Sure. <laughs> I would run it by them, and, and you know, they sharp, they sharp, and I trust them. And I'm surrounded by coaches. I'm surrounded by, by intelligent and wise people. Even my clients, like I could, I, I run things by my clients sometimes. Right. You know, they come for a session. I, I, you know, we get the job done, and at the end, I say, "Hey, listen, can I ask you about your opinion?" You know, and whether it's, you know, especially if I need something to do with the legal advice or 
to do with investment or property, having clients in those different industries, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I learn all the time and I'm, I'm willing to learn from anyone. Like, I'm not like, oh, you are not as successful as I'm, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to my clean, my cleaning lady. I will listen to anyone Yeah, because well, I believe that there is wisdom in everyone, you know? I'm of the same school. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree that everyone's got a fantastic book in them, but I'm sure they've got a good story in them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe book is pushing it, you know? But they have a good tweet in them, you know? They have a good tweet. <laughs> yeah, they've got a good, like, at least 140 characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, so uh, you've got a book. It's From Good to Amazing, No Bullshit Tips from the Life You Always Wanted. Um, Could you maybe just give us one or two little pearls from that and perhaps extend to us some of your reading material as well, something you'd recommend to us to read other than the book? Right, right, right. So I I wrote this book in pain back in 2012. I I say in pain because I don't like writing. It's one of those things, you know, I, I believe that is going to be good for me, for, for my coaching business, for my brand, and, and, I, and I wrote this book. And it's a basically combination, not combination, collection of, of I think there's around 70 uh, uh, small um, chapters. And, and just like I was talking about 22 areas that we go through during these initial consultations, I go through 70 different areas of personal development, such as goal setting, such as overcoming procrastination. So all the things I I um, I discuss uh, with people in my coaching, not all of them because there's more than 70, I'm sure. But like these are like my top my top thoughts or top insights from the field of personal development. But I say myself in the introduction of this book that. Hey, listen, if you've been reading personal development books for years, you're not going to find anything new in here. Right. Yeah, because I, I, I believe that everything in personal development has been said already in 20th century. So I can't possibly invent anything. Mm. So I wasn't trying to invent anything. I just, I just put my own spin on or my own spin on the things that I've learned, basically. Right. You know? Okay. Uh, and there is, it's very personal. It's, the style is conversational. It's very direct. And I share some personal stories. And, and it's, 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 you know, somebody said that reading this book is like listening to me speak. It's, ve- it's very me. There's no doubt I wrote it myself, basically. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've got an, an, well, a very distinguishable style. Uh, I was trying to grope for the right word, but couldn't get it in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's available on Amazon. So if anyone wants to check that out. And also your website, michaelserwer.com. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time out. And um, if anyone wants to tap up, Michael, I'm sure you're, you're very accessible. You, you, you're very responsive. Oh, yeah. on the, yeah. After eleven yeah. o'clock, that is that's uh, that's the time. <laughs> to <get hold> of <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, you know, it's like you follow me on Facebook. I'm 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 big on Facebook, especially. I post stuff every day and I share interesting stuff. What what I, what I find interesting anyway. Uh, YouTube channel, but like you can you can find the uh, icons to all my social media platforms. All the ones I'm on 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 like you said michaelserra.com and if you ever feel like discussing what coaching could do for you uh give me a shout we have a coffee and talk about it um you know like i said i have associates as well so whatever it is whatever angle you need to take on your life with coaching Mm -hmm. i will know the perfect person for you london-based or some internationally based coaches there as well so it, it changes life uh but only if you do it yeah and like you say you can't really put a price on changing your life or, oh, or, or turning like, your you life know, around like, you know 
sometimes sometimes people like look at my website and like oh my god this is gonna be expensive and i am expensive but i, I, I in the same time i say hey i'm not the only coach who can help you and yeah. you know i'm a, I'm a major advocate for coaching in general not just coaching with me like i strongly believe that everybody should have a coach and and if if, if you try it if you try it with the right person, and by right person, I mean someone you have the right chemistry with, you will understand what I mean. You'll be like, why I haven't done it before? It's one of those things, you know? Yeah. So I highly, highly recommend for all of you guys listening to us today to to, to Google coaching and see if you can find someone uh, you resonate with and just go and talk to them, you know? Have these initial consultations, which are usually free, mm-hmm. and just talk to them and see what they can do for you. You don't need to, you know... Uh, you don't need to commit to anything uh, initially. Michael Serra there. So that's Michael, S-E-R-W-A.com if you want to find him and check him out. Okay, so that's the end of the podcast. I'd like to thank my guests, George Foreman, Stephen Hendry, Michael Serra, uh, of course, Charlie Sheen. You know, good luck. You're going to need it. I'm going to be over here, like, winning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but like I said at the start of the show, if you want to check out all the blogs and the competitions and the interviews, then do head over to menswearstyle.co.uk. There you'll find all the other previous podcasts. If you want to subscribe to us in iTunes, that'd be great. If you want to leave us a five-star review, that'd be even better. It will keep me in a job and it will keep me winning. <laughs>